So my name is Cheryl Texas. I'm chilling here with my old friend, Gary Oldman. What's up? Gary, let me ask you one question right quick. Who should listen to Slash Young Cats? Who, who should listen to Slash Young Cats? Who should listen to Slash Young Cats? Who should listen to it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Venture Hardwar, Jeff Kanata, and Christy Puchko. And welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, what we do here on this podcast, at least what we're going to do today, is we're going to be discussing uh, what we've been watching, and then uh, just move into an in-depth review of a major release this week, Annihilation, the new film by Alex Garland. Uh, really excited to talk about that with you guys. You can find more episodes of the show at slashfilmcast.com. You can also email us at slashfilmcast@gmail.com. Now, uh, eagle-eyed listeners, eagle-eared listeners, whatever that is, may have yes. noticed that the intro song this week was a little bit different than it usually is. Uh, and that is because on last week's episode of the Slash Filmcast, uh, we had a contest. We said, hey, email in with your performance of... Uh, Gary Oldman performing one of his iconic lines, uh, which is the line, everyone, from Leon the Professional. And uh, a surprisingly surprisingly small number of people entered this contest. I would say (laughs) uh, 35, 36 people entered this contest. I was expecting... Everyone to enter it. <laughs> so if you entered the contest, you had like a three percent, you know, two percent, three percent chance of winning, uh, and so that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, uh, of course, uh, one of you actually wrote a song uh, to celebrate, and that's really awesome. Um, and so the person who wrote that song and who is one of the winners of the contest is Tyler. From Sacramento, California. Tyler, congratulations. You're going to get a Blu-ray copy of The Darkest Hour as well as a Joe Wright prize pack. So congratulations um, to Tyler from Sacramento. So cool, man. Yeah. Above and beyond. Indeed. Indeed. And then uh, the other winner is Shane D. from Chicago, Illinois. Shane D. from Chicago, Illinois will also receive a Darkest Hour prize pack. Thank you to everyone who entered. Really appreciate it. Uh, what'd you say, Jeff? Thank you, thank you to who? Everyone <laughs> who entered. That wouldn't have won the contest. That would not have won the. That wouldn't no. have barely even been entered into the contest. Everyone? That's like a question. That's a question. Everyone. It's my best. I need Carol to like Lingus. hear the spit flying yeah. from your face as yeah. you say it. Indeed, thing. indeed. Everyone, uh, sir. Uh, may I have some everyone, please? Okay, so uh, <laughs> we. Sh- so uh, I have a feeling, by the way, that. Um, Everyone who entered is going to have their opportunity to have their entries heard on the Slice Filmcast. Just uh, stay tuned for that. Okay. Uh, what else do I want to announce? Okay, so Darkest Hour and Joe Wright Blu-rays. We gave those away last week. And you might have thought to yourself, hey, I want to enter to win a cool Blu-ray, but I also uh, have a sense of shame. And I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to scream everyone into my microphone and send it to the Slice Filmcast at SliceFilmcast at gmail.com. Well, we've got some good news for you guys today because this week we're giving away another Blu-ray 
Uh, and this is a Blu-ray for a, a small movie called Coco, the newest Disney Pixar film. Uh, now, I was not here when you guys reviewed that movie, but I gotta assume that everyone here loved that movie, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, great film, and Coco is coming out on Blu-ray on February 27th. So by the time you're listening to this, Coco's out on Blu-ray, uh, and you have a chance to win a copy of Coco. All you gotta do is email slashfilmcast at gmail.com uh, by this Friday, uh, Friday is March 2nd, uh, email slashfilmcast at gmail.com by Friday, March 2nd, 11.59 p.m. Pacific on Friday, March 2nd. Uh, in the subject line, put Coco Contest. And in the body of the email, include your address, U.S.-only addresses, no P.O. boxes. And also write to us with uh, your favorite musical moment, Coco, the Pixar film. Uh, music played a big role in that movie. Uh, critical moments in that movie were expressed with music. Uh, and so kind of curious what your favorite musical moment is in a film. Like what is any film? Uh, so not, not just from Coco, but from yeah, any film, from anything, yeah. any, any time yeah. a movie, like a, a music cue or someone picks up a guitar and starts playing. Something, what, what was something that really compelled you? Uh, email us slash filmcast by 1159 p.m. Pacific on Friday, March 2nd. Subject line, Coco Contest. Include your address, U.S. only addresses, no P.O. boxes, and your favorite musical moment. Do you guys have any favorite musical moments uh, off the top of your head? I feel like... I mean, yeah, go ahead, Chrissy. Aside from like a lot of the obvious ones, like Gene Kelly's my all, all day, all night, but a more off the offbeat one that I love is the dance number in Gamer. <laughs> the, uh, like, nice. legit. It's insane. Yeah. And it's, it's like you're it's watching this movie and then it starts and you're like, what like what happened? Like you feel like your mind is cracked in half, but it's so good. Is that the uh Neville Dean Taylor Gerard Butler <laughs> movie you're talking about? It is. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Amazing Dexter gamer does reference. a dance number. Wow. Michael C. Hall. I think, yeah. Look it up online. It's amazing. It's my good. favorite, my favorite musical, one of my favorite musical moments, not necessarily my favorite of all time, but is probably the opening uh, scene of Boogie Nights. When mm. the camera does it, you know, uh, Best of My Love, I think, is the song that plays. And the camera does that little curly cue up into the ceiling. And then, like, in a long, continuous shot, it goes into the club. And you int- are introduced to every major character in the film in one shot. Uh, love that scene. Love that, uh, that music cue. So, anyway, those are just a couple of sample entries. But, yeah, please send us uh, yours at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. And win one of two Coco Blu-rays. You have the chance to do so. So, uh, all right, let's move on to what we've been watching this week. Jeff Kanata, what have you watched this week? So I, I saw Game Night, the uh, the new comedy film from directors uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. And uh, guys, if scientists in a lab were tasked with creating a movie just for me, I can imagine them saying, uh, it's got to be about board games. The, the dude loves board games. We're making a movie just for <laughs> Jeff Kanata. Uh, it's got to be about board games. Um, who is the, what are those shows that he, he really loves? Oh, oh, Arrested Development and Friday Night Lights? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, the main actors in those. Oh, yeah, the actors that he's always wished he was. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kyle Chandler and Jason Bateman. <laughs> yeah, 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 let's get them. Um, what about the one actress who he's had a crush on longest? Oh, you mean Rachel McAdams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put her in that. And uh, what are like some of his favorite comedies of all time? Clue? Yeah, yeah, Clue. Let's make it feel a lot like a modern version of Clue. Um, 
and make it really smart and really fun and really crazy and zany and over the top and a bunch of cameos from people he loves. And uh, I think, I think, I think this is going to work guys. And guess what? It works. It feels (laughs) like they made the movie just, just for me that I absolutely adore. I know it's not, as I tweeted, it's not the most important movie that's come out this year. It's not maybe even the best movie that's come out this year. That's but it's Paddington Mike. too. <laughs> right. <laughs> but totally Jeff, knows. Jeff, at what point would those scientists stop and ask themselves why their resources are being misallocated in this way? Uh, I, I don't think that question would occur to them because they're too focused on their work, David. <laughs> <laughs> they just wondered so hard to think if they could do it. They didn't stop to think. <laughs> yes. Exactly. They don't stop that's, to think if they should. That's the that's classic how problem. science works. That's what science <laughs> does. They don't stop to think why there's no ethics in science. Um, so anyway, you lo- you loved Game Night. I, it is my favorite movie of the year. I adore this movie. I laughed my butt off. I was charmed by it. It's clever. It goes to crazy places. It's got wild twists. Uh, it is. It's a bunch of my favorite people being great. It, 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 there are scene after scene after scene that I. It, if I was if I'd seen this movie, you know, in high school. I would watch this movie maybe 500 times like I did with Clue, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. would, it would be a movie I would memorize uh, because I love it that much. I, it is it's not like I said, it's not the best movie. It's not even it's not the most important movie, but it's my favorite movie of the year so far. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's wonderful. All right. Well, that's Game Night. Uh, and I am looking for I think I'm seeing that movie this Friday. So I'm really psyched about it. I've heard great things. Uh, and yeah, it's so fun. It's just a wild ride. Yeah. You saw it too, Christy. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I, I particularly like, uh, I mean, Jesse Plemons runs away with that movie. Rachel McAdams is great, but also Billy Magnuson from Inger goes West is so funny in it Uh, as just like this doofy douchebag. Yeah. He plays like, uh, you know, maybe if, if it was an eighties movie, he plays like the ditzy blonde, uh, that you would find in those kind of movies. And he, but he pulls it. He is so clueless and, but just happy to be there all the time. It's, this isn't a spoiler at all, but there's one point where he says, Congratulations. And there's, I laughed a lot during this movie. That was probably my biggest laugh. Yeah. Just the I, way I mean, he says it in the moment, it's perfect. There's like a dozen scenes I want to bring up as being so wonderful. There's some like genuinely cool action moments. There's, you know, it's shot in a really stylish, fun way. It, I, I just, I, adored every second of it. I, there's nothing even I would change. It's so fun. And, and also I should note, if you do go see this movie, there is an after credit scene. So stay through the credits. There's a fun after credit scene. Very cool. That's game night. It's out in theaters right now. Jeff Kanata, what else have you been watching this week? Uh, I also have seen, uh, only the first two episodes of the new HBO series here. And now I believe there are three episodes as you guys are hearing this podcast but uh i've only seen the first two this is from writer director uh creator alan ball who i fell in love with with six feet under six feet under still one of my favorite series um but boy did i not like uh true blood <laughs> he, he kind of went on a bender <laughs> during true blood i think he just like was fuck it and just threw everything into the show it was amazing yeah i mean i i was so devoted to six feet under and six feet under was 
just sort of as the beginning of this golden age of television was happening and it was like, oh my God, TV can be about this stuff. This is great. And this, I would, I would follow this creator to the ends of the earth. Oh my God, he's making a new show. And it's, it's like a fantasy show about vampires. I'm going to love this. And I was like, oh, I do not love this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he has a new show here and now it's on HBO and I've heard uh, mixed things. What did you think, Jeff Kanata? Mixed things, Dave. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I actually was very intrigued by the first episode. The second episode felt like a huge step backwards. The concept of this show, another of my favorite shows uh, ever, my wife and I watched, binged all of it, uh, is a show called Parenthood, uh, which I love. This feels like Parenthood, but like, Negative. You know, Parenthood is like this feel-good family. It's the same kind of concept of this big, large, uh, multi-generational family that all sort of congregate around each other and all of their interpersonal relationships and stuff. But this is sort of the the dark version of that um, because they're all messed up in myriad ways and, uh, you know, they're all very self-destructive. And the show is very much about sex and how these all these people are sort of – unable to process sex in a healthy way. And, and it's also this, uh, multi-ethnic family, the, the, it's set in Portland and the, uh, patriarch and matriarch of the family are these sort of hippie generation, uh, very progressive people who, uh, adopted children. And the, the show is very clear that they adopted them to sort of make themselves feel better about themselves. You know, like, look at how progressive we are by adopting the, the kids from the, poorest nations and and uh the show is very much about that particular left-wing person that is very self-congratulatory and sort of uh wants you to be very much aware how progressive they really are um and and their relationship is unhealthy their kids are unhealthy it is and then and then so you have all of that you have that sort of dark parenthood thing going on but also there are these hints of supernatural something creeping in and only Wait, very really. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the characters is like having visions and there's all this weird, like he sees, he has dreams and he sees this, the number 1111 everywhere and he starts freaking out and he has all these visions and there's definitely this supernatural side that I don't know. Yeah. how far the show is going to go in that direction or not, but it's... He's like playing a J.J. Abrams. He's like, uh, this will get people interested in the show. Maybe a mystery, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. John from Cincinnati didn't do very well when Milton <laughs> went that way. <laughs> right. Should we uh, get Cowboys? What about surfers and, like, angels? <laughs> right. I bet this yeah. family's just full of fairies, because uh, that, that was another big twist. <laughs> that was a true blood right? Oh, which, to be fair, that it, was in the it, books, but it didn't work in the books either. It did not work. But, yeah, I, I watched True Blood for way too long, Jeff. Yeah, well, I suspect... I, I'm sticking with this one. I'm I'm hoping that... I mean, the second episode was really so on the nose... I mean, we have a trip to Planned Parenthood in that episode and a confrontation with picketers outside the Planned Parenthood. And we also have uh, students who want to start a uh, – the, the mother works like in association with a high school, local high school. And there's a student organization that wants to start a white pride group. I mean it is all like so on the nose and, and so not subtle about its themes – 
but I'm kind of giving it some leash here. I, I think there's some interesting stuff. There's certainly a cast that is worth uh, paying attention to. I love Holly Hunter. I love that we're in a hunter assance, right, Dave? Oh, yeah. 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 Full hunter assance right now. Uh, and I'm I'm all for it. I think she is brilliant. And we really are in a hunter assance. I mean, like, yeah. uh, oh, I don't just throw that around willy nilly. Good. Good. <laughs> I mean, I think between like what uh, Big Sick, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Incredibles 2, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, Batman v Superman, right? Like, yeah, Hunter Sons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I appreciate one that you're trying to make this word happen, but two, I just love her to pieces. So yeah, I actually got to meet her super briefly once, and like, I say meet her, but it was like they introduced her on the set of the Big Sit to a Sick to a bunch of us, and I just was drop jawed because <laughs> she's she's even teenier than I am. Like, she's a very petite woman, but, like, she just has such a presence that, like, literally everybody treated her like royalty. Like, people were, like, half a As step away should. from bowing. Yeah. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and in this show, her husband is played by Tim Robbins, who's a giant. So, like, the, the even just the visual of the two of them next to each other is pretty pretty crazy. Um, but, I, lo- I you know, I like Tim Robbins, and there's some, there's some really interesting actors uh, in the show. So I'm going to stick with it at least for a few more episodes and and see where it goes. But I it's you know it's on thin ice a little bit with me. I'm not I'm not loving it. But I'm I'm definitely intrigued and curious about this supernatural side. And I think the interpersonal family drama might get pulled out of some triteness that I, I sense right now. And, and I think it has potential to be decent. So I'm I'm going to continue continue watching it. All right, that's here and now. It's on uh, HBO, right? Uh, it's it's HBO, yeah. HBO right now. Okay, uh, so I, I want to give you guys listening a little behind the scenes look at the slash filmcast. Uh, I know it sounds every week like we're just winging it, you know. <laughs> I know it sounds like uh, we don't plan or or do anything, and we're just kind of getting up here and and uh, improving, extemporizing. As, Does it sound uh, like that? As Stephen Tobolowsky might say. Um, but uh, no, in fact, every second of the podcast is meticulously planned. And so we actually have these show notes that we look at during the show to kind of uh, guide the conversation so everyone knows kind of what's going to happen. And uh, ne- the next things in what we've been watching, Jeff has written here half of Mute. And then Christy, in her line of what we've been watching, uh, has written Mute, Everything Sucks, Vicious, which... I feel like uh, could could encapsulate the reaction to mute, um, and also Jacoby, Jacoby. <laughs> Jacoby. That's right. Shh, no, that's a note to myself that no one's supposed to know about. Yeah, yeah. Love, so, yeah. so Jeff saw half of mute, and uh, Christy also saw mute. Also, by the way, if you see mute, you might conclude that everything sucks and uh, film critics are vicious. Um, but Jeff, why is ha- what's 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 up with half of Mute? What's what's going on here? Mute, of course, right? Uh, Duncan Jones' newest sci-fi film, which debuted on Netflix this week, right? Yes. So uh, well, why why only half? What's going on there? Jeff? I will I will defer to Christy for most of this, but I will say that uh, I sat down to watch Mute, and I decided halfway in that I respected myself too much to continue <laughs> yep. watching it. Yeah. Uh, that it, my time was better spent elsewhere. I tweeted out, if anybody has seen all of it and it's somehow, uh, the second half somehow redeems the first, please let me know. And I got overwhelming response from people that said, I watched all of it and you missed nothing. Uh, you made the right decision stopping halfway. Because it was one of those experiences that I'm sure many people have had watching stuff on Netflix or watching anything at home where you're like, oh man, this is, how long have we been watching this? I'm going to press pause and oh God, it's only halfway. 
And then you go. I, I you feel know like what? you I don't can't. usually bail on stuff, Jeff. Like I, feel I like, almost never, almost yeah. never bail on stuff. Yes. So it was a big deal for me uh, we, to bail we, on we it. We usually collectively don't bail on things because mm-hmm. once you're like 30, 45 minutes in, it's it's actually more valuable to us as you yes. know critics to be able to say we watched this thing than right. than like that, that like that statement that credibility is worth more than the time we would save from stopping at that point. Um, yeah. In general, because our time because our time is mostly valueless, right? So yeah, well, um, no, it's true. I uh, I definitely was torn in the sense that I felt like I am going to do this movie a disservice by even bringing it up. Luckily, Christy saw all of it. She saw all of it twice. twice. Yeah. yeah, watched it twice. Oh, I did. Okay, oh, so why? Well, okay. First, I am curious movie. when you tapped out, but I feel like there's no way to say that without spoilers. Do you know roughly what time in the movie you tapped out? It was Did almost you exactly an hour in, which is like almost Oof. exactly half of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I get it. Um, okay. So <laughs> I watched it the first time and I hated it. Like I was actually really astonished at, at how bad I thought it was because I think it looks like a Blade Runner ripoff. I think it looks like Duncan Jones was super into Blade Runner as a kid and then was like, but what if more sex robots? And like... <laughs> It's just, it was so profoundly disappointing because I really like Moon. I like Source Code. And I even liked uh, Warcraft okay. Um, mm. And I say that as somebody that didn't play Warcraft. But to, to uh, I do want to point out that my husband played Warcraft and he liked the movie too. I didn't think it was great. But like I was impressed. I had a good time. Whatever. So I was looking forward to Mute. Um, but it is, it is. So the deal on this is that he, it was a movie he wanted to make kind of early days but didn't have the budget and everything. And, and it, it feels like that, like themes that you see worked out in his other stuff is very immature in this. And it just feels very aimless. And it's also just a very ugly movie, both visually and kind of spiritually like Jeff, especially because of the conversation we had during, uh, during um, Florida project, when you were like, I'm tapping out halfway through, I was like, that's probably for the best. (laughs) <laughs> it gets it gets really really dark, and I won't go into spoilers on this. But um, yeah, I watched it again though because I watched it and then um did not like it and didn't get around to writing my review because a lot of other things piled up. Um, and then I saw that on Twitter, Duncan Jones is kind of talking about critics in a in in a he's unhappy. He feels like critics didn't give it a chance. Well, we should we should say this movie got completely eviscerated by critics. Uh, it did. It got a nine percent Rotten Tomatoes, and like the reviews were vicious. Like it was not. Yes. It was not like oh, it's okay. It was like this movie is terrible. You know, like that's what but, a lot of people said. And here's something I find it's, interesting it's, that it's I feel incoherent like, too. That's mm-hmm. that's the that's the sad part for me. It's it does it's yeah. Like it's watching this second time it made more sense to me but then it kind of has to right but the second time I was picking up on stuff but then it was like instead of being like oh that was always there I was like oh that's there but it's really inelegantly there and it kind of bothered me um, but uh, I I wonder with Mute and with the Cloverfield uh, paradox if Netflix is ultimately doing a disservice to these films, but I don't, we don't know. I mean, that's kind of the frustrating truth because with both of these films, they released them in such a way that it was almost impossible for critics to actually have time to spend with them because with Cloverfield Paradox, it came out the same night for everybody. And with Mute, they only gave out access to that a couple of days ahead of time, which is generally not a great sign. Um, And 
the problem with that is sometimes if something is a richer, more complicated thing, people want time to mull over it. And you're not given that when you're when this happens. So I think that that can cause a more reactionary critique of films. Um, but then on top of that, we don't actually know if one critics matter when it comes to Netflix movies, mm -hmm. because we don't know how they do on Netflix. That's completely up to Netflix to tell us how their numbers are. And because they only pick and choose when to tell us how, what their numbers are, it doesn't give us any context anyway. And also you have to take their word for it. So like, who cares that Bright failed with critics? Who cares that Mute failed with critics? Who cares that Clever Food Paradox failed with critics if Netflix says that it did well? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's an extremely yeah, opaque uh, situation with Netflix, and and my, uh, my position is that it doesn't. They don't even care if it did well for Netflix. Like ultimately, the metric for Netflix is: did enough people feel like they had to have a subscription to Netflix because of the stuff that everybody is talking about? Right. And right. in in that sense, it doesn't matter if the uh, a movie is good uh, or bad. It just has to feel like, oh man, I can't cancel my Netflix subscription because. This is where all the action is. And I think so, with those other movies, by the way, with like Bright and even with Cloverfield Paradox, right? There was something there. There was a conversation there to be had, be it Will Smith or the next Cloverfield movie, right? And there is right. there's just nothing here. You're now saying that you're saying the conversation has been muted? It's silent. Yes. But here's the thing though. <laughs> I, I wonder <laughs> this conversation makes me wonder if part of what Netflix is angling for is effectively visual clickbait. Like, mm -hmm. cause we are talking like, you know, there has been a backlash on Twitter for people who are mad at critics for saying this is so terrible. And then they're watching it and going, it's not that bad. So then there's all this free promotion for Netflix promoting mute. And there is a conversation. It's not a terribly in-depth one. But I do wonder if, if this is kind of the point where Netflix can take a filmmaker like Duncan Jones and it doesn't matter if the movie is good or not or if it makes any damn sense because people are going to tune in, right? Because people want to talk about it. And But clearly there's – it's not a cynical move from Duncan Jones perspective. Like no, he, no. He thinks it's right. – he's making a movie he wants to make. So I don't think it's – purely this cynical thing i think i'm saying that from netflix's perspective there may be a possibility that they are playing kind of a content game like we have mm -hmm. to play on websites a lot of the time where like the headline is something that's to draw you in and then who cares what's actually in the article i'm saying that they're making movies that are essentially clickbait yeah that yeah that they're more effective as marketing vehicles than as movies and i think like guys bright Cloverfield Paradox and Mute, that is a pretty, like if a, if a movie studio released those three in a row, like that'd be a pretty rough run. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, uh, pretty rough quality wise, but apparently Bright was what, successful enough to Netflix to warrant a sequel? Yeah. They announced that sequel before the movie came out, yeah. though, didn't they? So they had some metrics. They saw something. It was like, okay, either more people are subscribing, like more new users are subscribing, or maybe even fewer people are unsubscribing right. than typically. I really wonder what is the secret sauce behind all these Right, decisions. and I'm not saying it's 100% bad, because while those three movies, I didn't see Bright, so I shouldn't say I didn't like Bright, but mm. while I didn't like Cloverfield Paradox or Mute, I, I'm not necessarily saying this is a bad thing, because it does allow filmmakers to take risks, even if those risks don't necessarily pay off by my count. But like, Oksha that movie would not have gotten made otherwise. That's such a bizarre movie. So there is an upside to it where Netflix is willing to take these risks on these properties that don't have to appeal to a studio like wide audience so they can do these weirder movies. And the gift to us is that there are more mid-budget sci-fi fantasy movies. So yeah. that's cool. It's just, 
I'm kind of hoping they find their way a little more because right now it seems like what they promise filmmakers is do whatever you want. And like Martin Scorsese's got a movie coming up on Netflix now. Like Mm -hmm. it's not like they're just getting, you know, the little guys. They're really getting big names. It's just a question of I'm I'm actually going to be really curious in the the coming years when we look at Netflix movies versus studio movies. I wonder if the dynamic of how we talk about studio movies will change because we like to talk about studio notes like they're always boneheaded. But you see some of these movies and you're like, oh, Somebody maybe. Like, 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 there's, a reason, yeah. there's a reason why studio notes were a thing in the first place, which is that uh-huh. sometimes they're valuable. Yeah. Um, Almost and- always, it's always like the worst thing you can give to somebody is complete control. You know, <laughs> especially if they if they don't have a clear vision of what they're doing. And I, I don't understand any of the Amish stuff. Like no. why that's in here. The lead it character's Amish. And, and the really idea cheap. is right that. You know, maybe, okay, somebody who doesn't really use technology having to exist in a Blade Runner world. Oh, that's kind of cool, I guess. Except, like, totally, like, the movie begins in, like, the, the wilderness, and he's he's on a boat, and it's a boating accident, and it looks like today. It actually mm-hmm. even doesn't even look like modern day. It looks like, you know, the past. And then yeah. we flash forward into Blade Runner future, and then, like, then there are scenes that look like they're in the past, and, like, nothing in this movie makes sense. I was questioning everything. Like, I, I have no idea what any of the actors were doing here. Uh, Paul Rudd and Justin Thoreau are like a pair of, uh, I don't know, what do you call them? Like mob doctors, yeah. I guess. And They're they like really... MASH. It seemed yeah. like MASH. Kind of like MASH. But uh, that relationship does not go where you'd expect, Jeff. Like, when mm-hmm. you tapped mm-hmm. out in a really uh, good yeah. point. I tapped out. I will <laughs> say this, though. Justin Thoreau with a long wig and round glasses is like a spitting image of Steve Jobs. Oh, that is not where I thought you were going with okay. that. And I was All like, right. I, I thought you were about to stumble onto a major spoiler, yeah. but you went a totally different direction with it. But, but Devinger is pointing like out... like young Steve Jobs. Devinger points out, I think, one of the biggest challenges of this film, which is that it is a mishmash of all these different ideas. You have Alex Skarsgård playing this mute character who's out looking for his girlfriend, and then you have this other completely... This It feels like a completely separate film uh-huh. of yeah. uh, you know these two mob surgeons and uh and then there's like all these crazy ideas crammed in there like you said like the fact that he's amish like all these world building elements that are introduced left and right uh it just feels like a a hodgepodge um the clapper is in this movie folks the clapper when it gets to like the sex robots with the appendages that i don't want to get into because i just want to forget they existed like i just it just hit a point that I was like, what are we doing? Because it's not <laughs> yeah. relevant to the plot anymore. And you've got, what, Dominic Moynihan in, like, a geisha outfit. It's just, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I saw that part. I definitely got I, to that part. I just don't know. Like, I'm not, it's also weird because the movie is so about sex, but it's also so shaming of sex that I'm just right. kind of like, when was this right. made? Like, it doesn't feel like a modern film because Some... it just feels like it. there's all these kinks in the movie, but it also, like, seems to... Like it has the main character like glaring at every single kink, and you're like, okay, because okay, he down. can't respond to anything, I guess, in, in a really emotionally right. rewarding way. Honestly, this movie is a good sign. Sometimes burn your first script if uh, your early <laughs> yeah. script. Just like, just let him, let him go. Don't, don't make him. Please. I think what's baffling is just you look at his other sci-fi movies. I mean, putting aside Warcraft, Moon and Source Code were. Uh, Moon is a great, legitimately great film. Yes. Like I think yes. it might have been in my top ten that year. Like, and awesome honestly, movie. The, the only thing good about Mute is the, I, I want to say Easter eggs of uh, of don't Moon. Don't make yeah. people watch Mute but, for that. No. Yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a small not, thing. Easter don't. eggs. Easter <laughs> eggs uh, imply that there's some hiddenness to them. They're just eggs that 
They're rotten just, eggs. It just, it's just a, an <laughs> egg rotten. that he laid in the movie. Rotten eggs. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah they, so for those who don't know, uh, Mute and Moon theoretically take place in the same universe. But uh, yeah, the Source Code, guys, Source Code is a hugely entertaining film. It is yeah. a yeah, really, really well done genre film. It, it's um, also another movie that I think tonally is all over the place, but it's at least more enjoyable than this for me. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. I think it balances the tones expertly. Uh, yeah. And this movie feels very listless by comparison, and maybe that's the point. That's what right. he's trying to convey, but it just it it doesn't feel like it adds up to much, unfortunately, with mute. And that is a shame because Duncan Jones is a filmmaker we're all rooting for here on the show. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, anyway, Wait, which, by the way, uh, I just want to say it is extra sad when a filmmaker like Duncan Jones, who we we were all championing his you know movie out of nowhere. Right. It is really sad when like he has a failure, maybe a couple failures, and then it's like, oh, it's the critics who are the problem. Dude, where where would you be if the yeah. critics weren't telling people to watch your first movie? I think Come he on. would be fine. You know, he's he's gonna I'm be sure. fine no matter what. It's but I, I agree. Like, yeah, it's it's sad when critics turn on you, uh, or when uh, when the filmmaker turns on critics. Uh, but Christy, you were saying that like the Duncan Jones turning on critics, it was what guilted you into a second viewing of Mute. It did. Right? It and didn't did make it, me did... like the movie any better. It actually, it made okay. I still dislike the movie, but for like different reasons now because watching it again. <laughs> I realized that there's more going on there than I thought there was, but it's still so basic. Like, it's just, you have these two characters. The There's a Paul Rudd character who's an American mob, bo- mob doctor or whatever, and he's, like, fast-talking and really macho and blah, 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 blah. And then you've got this, like, mute Amish character played by Alexander Skarsgård. And it's like, I get it. They're not alike. But it's like, that's not, <laughs> it's just, you know what I'm saying, though? And also, like, the idea of, like, oh, we need a fish out of water. What if he's Amish? Like, okay, I mean... It just feels like film school stuff. There's even this like big moment that's supposed to be a big reveal and they do this attempted subversion of it. But it's again like it feels like something you do in film school that you think is really clever. And then you actually start studying film and going, oh, that's not really different enough to make this interesting. And it just bummed me out. I like I I do believe that like filmmakers sometimes get so attached to these early ideas that they have that like it kind of infantilizes those ideas like. You know, uh, last year, Luc Besson put out Valerian and I I wanted to like Valerian, but like there are parts of that movie that are really cool. But there are the parts where he kind of let his imagination run wild. The parts where he tried to stay to what he thought that comic was when he is a kid are just Mm -hmm. super boring. And so it's just kind of frustrating. I mean, even Baby Driver and I know people love Baby Driver and I like Baby Driver, but the story itself and the characters in it are so much less nuanced and layered than like Edgar Wright's other work. Yeah, yeah, we brought that up too. Like you, you could tell that he wrote that one himself. It was just right. a little more. And it's not that they're yeah. bad necessarily. I think mute is bad, but it's just that <laughs> I just—it's disappointing that when someone's like, "This is my passion project," and you see it, and it doesn't—you don't feel the passion in mute. It feels <laughs> like a dead rep, like reproduction of a bunch of other things. It's just such a bummer. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, uh, we're still rooting for Duncan Jones. Not so much of a fan of mute on Netflix, though. Um, yeah, but, I think uh, that's the biggest. I think it's the biggest. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I, I love that what you said. It, that's the biggest thing about it is that I I, le- I left even the short amount of time I spent with the movie going. Why was this a passion project? There's nothing in it that explains that, that or you can yeah. even see into why he wanted to make this so badly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No worries. Uh, well, that's mute. It's on Netflix right now. Christy, what else been watching? Okay, so I also watched on Netflix. Everything sucks. 
um, which is a uh, TV show. It's I think it's eight episodes, and it's about kids growing up in the 90s. And I'm going to tell everybody now that if you watch the first episode, the first episode's like fine, but it's kind of leaning so hard into the 90s stuff, I almost shut it off. I actually probably would have, but I was doing dishes. So I was like, oh, fine. <laughs> Because it's, like, literally, like, a close-up of a can of Surge. And, like, one kid's like, holy shnikes, damn, Gina. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. He's the kid that says the catchphrases. I get it. But in episode two, it kind of, like, has introduced its characters. And now it's telling you what this story is going to be. And it's about these young kids who are trying to kind of figure out their way. And it's not, like, the same story we've seen. It's not, like, John Hughes. And it's not, like, Stranger Things exactly. Because these are kids... Like, basically, this is these are kids. It's the AV club versus the theater kids. And the theater kids are like the cool bullies, which I, I wish I grew. <laughs> I was a theater kid in high school and I wish we were that cool um, or regarded that way. But it's actually really funny and has a, a very sharp emotional awareness. And even the adult characters are treated like full fledged people. And um, I was very impacted by the sweetness of it because it's ultimately about this uh, this freshman boy who falls for this girl, but she's got something going on where like, they're going to have a conflict about his interest in her. And it's not like Degrassi. It's not super intense or anything. Um, you know, it's problems that you have when you're like 14, if they're not super serious, but they feel really important. And like, I thought it was really funny. And like the core of it is that they decide in like episode three or something that they're going to make a movie together, the AV club and the theater kids. So they have to kind of like these, these uh, factions that we're fighting are going to join forces. And it becomes a really fun device to tell these people's stories and to have these characters hit in unexpected ways. And I thought it was really wonderful. And by the end of it, I was just bummed that it was only eight episodes because it ended in such a beautiful moment that I was like, but it reminded me of Mrs. Maisel where I was like, we're there. Let's keep going. Oh, we're done. Ha. <laughs> Um, and also just as a, as someone who grew up partially in the nineties, uh, I love the soundtrack cause it is just the most nineties soundtrack. It's like breakfast at Tiffany's. There's a lot of ska music. It was a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, that's everything sucks. It's on Netflix and sounds like you'd recommend it. Highly, uh, highly. And just anything go else? Through episode two. Yeah. Uh, and I've been trying to watch more British shows. I want to thank everybody that's been sending me stuff. Some people have emailed me long lists with descriptions. Some people have tweeted me things. If you, even if I didn't get back to you, I've written everything down. I now have a very long document that I've been tracking what I can actually find. Um, but I started watching vicious, which is a show with Derek, uh, with, then I mispronounced his first name, Derek Jacoby and Ian McKellen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, man. But anyway, it's a show about these two older gentlemen who are uh, British or English, and they live in this apartment together. And they've been partners romantically for decades. One of them, uh, Ian McKellen, plays an actor, and he's really narcissistic. And Derek is his, uh, like, his partner and his, like, sort of like sort of housewife i mean that's not the appropriate nomenclature but that's kind of the role is like he takes care of the apartment and he makes sure everything's okay and but they're so mean to each other and it's like a very i don't know like all in the family type vibe but, but with these two like very very sassy shade throwing gay men and like they have a best friend who is just uh very very le lecherous toward every young man in the world and then ramsey bolton is in it as uh their their neighbor ash who is just really sweet and kind of comes under their wing. And like, it's just, 
such a weird it's like every it's kind of reminds me of like house or something where every episode is kind of the same where it's like basically like okay so here's the thing they're going to complain about this week and they will mostly sit around their apartment and complain and be very sassy and saucy to each other but it's just really funny and like i don't know it they're so it, it's vicious it's vicious but it's very sweet and funny and it's just so much fun to watch like ian mckellen especially because i'm more familiar with him than i am with uh, derek jacoby but to watch him kind of use all that gravitas he has as a dramatic actor to just deliver these really scathing one-liners. Yeah, it's a it's a show that I love too, and uh, I grew up in acting school, idolizing these these two guys in particular because I grew up, you know, just infatuated with Shakespeare. And Derek Jacoby has played Hamlet more times than any human being in the history of the world, and you know these are like world-renowned Shakespearean actors doing a three camera sitcom right mm-hmm. doing the most <laughs> most ridiculous uh you know uh set up punchline gags it's very it, golden girls yeah it is f- for sure golden girls that is the best that is excellent uh analogy for american audiences it is golden girls but gay men and golden girls with like mean streak you know yeah. uh but it's it's ridiculously fun, and they are clearly having a blast doing it. Um, you know, these old friends, these old Rada actors who know each other, you know, they're clearly having so much fun doing this. And it's it's just great to be able to see actors that you think are sort of above this format doing this format. It's it's I, I like it. And too. doing it masterfully. And it's also just really funny because, like, I mentioned that Ian plays an actor, but he's like not a successful actor. Like, I think it's, like, his biggest thing was, like, he was a recurring character on a TV show in, like, the 70s or something. But he's still plugging away. And so it's, like, occasionally you watch him go on auditions and it's always very dehumanizing and embarrassing. And it's just, it's a very, very funny show. And it's, like, it's it's really good for, like, if you just need to let off a couple of, like, barks of laughter. Very cool. The show is vicious. And how did you watch the show? How do you watch the show? Like, what? Well, it's on Amazon Prime. Cool. Vicious. And it's available right now on Amazon Prime. All right, let's move on with the show. Uh, a few more things to talk about in what we've been watching. Guys, I'm going to spoil La La Land. I'm going to spoil the movie La La Land. So if you have not seen La La Land, you do not want to be spoiled. Skip really forward by a few minutes. Oscar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the one that it, actually it was a year ago today that La La Land almost won the Oscar. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> one of the craziest moments in, you know, television yeah. history, I would argue. Um, and actually, I think Hollywood Reporter put together a really cool uh, oral history of that moment. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. We gotta but, do we gotta do an over under on the number of jokes in <laughs> this year's Oscars yeah. about that moment. No fewer than eight, I would say. About oh, that. I, but, yeah. I think that's low. I think that's real low. I so, think it's going to be wall to wall jokes about that moment. So I saw La La Land in concert, live in concert at the Seattle Symphony uh, recently. Uh, and I got to say, this is, this is like literally the day after Jeff Kanata had called La La Land thematically dishonest on, on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that is, you have plucked, again, you did this on, you threw me under the bus on Twitter, and here you're plucking a, a, a portion of a sentence out of context. But, you know. More power to you, Dave. I did. I did say that. I yeah. did. You're well, right. Here's I the thing, Jeff. It. Even though uh, <laughs> I, I did fully intend to throw you under the bus, 
I, uh, I, I think you had a really great point. I, I watched La La Land <laughs> and it again. Sure, it sure seemed like you thought I had a great point when you <laughs> quoted it. <laughs> I think you're being sarcastic <laughs> now, but in any case, yeah. uh, so I'm, re- I'm really torn about the film after seeing it. I mean, I think uh, seeing it live was overall really great. Um, I especially the piano. Like I love the piano in that uh, in that movie. Yeah, uh, surely the, Ryan Gosling has better things to do. Uh, than uh, what this whole concert series? Come on! Oh yeah, yeah. He didn't. Ryan Gosling did not show up. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, what they did was basically the people in the movie sang the song. So it's not like they had like live singers uh, perform the songs. Uh, and I actually thought the audio, as you might expect, like the mix was better with the live orchestra, and they they kind of jacked huh. up the uh, uh, the volume of the singers, and so I thought the mix was just better, just hearing it live in concert. Uh, if you like the music, you know, I, I think the music is legitimately great in the film. So if you like it, then you should check it out. Uh, the I was very disappointed that the trumpet player completely whiffed on this major solo in the final track of the film. You uh, would. You yeah, I, I, it just that. completely yeah. like borked this solo, and it just was very uh, disappointing. Why is, why is that one <laughs> one man booing so loudly at the end? Of the- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean, I wanted to say something, but I didn't, you know, uh, publicly. But anyway, uh, like during during the concert. <laughs> oh, I thought you might go up to him after and be like, "I'm very disappointed." In yeah, I, I mean, had one job. I, I, yeah, I kind of I wanted to say something like that, but I didn't. Okay, all right. Anyway, guys, look, I'm, I'm digressing. Um, I hope he listens to the show, and now he's just sitting there being like, oh, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> me too, Christy. So the, the the movie, you know, I, I think sends a lot of mixed messages. Jeff, you had a you, you made the great point that, like, most of the movie is about how uh, – is about people failing in Hollywood, right? Like 90% yeah. of the movie is about people failing in Hollywood. And spoiler alert, uh, everyone gets what they wanted in the end except uh, except they don't um, uh, get to be together, together at the end, yeah. right? Um, so I asked this question on Twitter. I took this poll. I said, is La La Land a tribute to dreamers who help create art and shape our culture against insurmountable odds? Or is it a devastating indictment of the emotional cost of following outsized dreams? Um, and my, the the answer choices were it's a tribute, it's a devastating indictment, it's both, duh, or neither of these. And uh, out of 618 votes, 57% said it's both, duh, uh, which I just thought was kind of an insane answer that people think it's both of those things. Like It, it I, is both of is, those things. I feel like those most, things are fundamentally most, incompatible in my opinion. That is the most uh, – m- um, fucking word I'm looking for. <laughs> that is that is the the biggest uh, example of why I'm right about this movie being thematically inconsistent and, yeah. and, and dishonest. Is because th- it can't be both of those things. I, that's what I'm it saying. Has to pick one. I, I agree completely. I agree completely. And, and not engage in this conversation again. Brand, Brandon Lee Tenney <laughs> made a really good point. He says uh, the movie itself doesn't choose and therefore accomplishes neither satisfactorily. Some might see that as a measured exploration of both being true, but all I see is a lack of courage behind its convictions. End quote. I'm that's like. One hundred percent agree with with Brandon Lee Tenney. Like it's like um, Lindsay Romaine, uh, friend of the show, made a great point. She's like, this movie works a lot better if you think of Ryan Gosling as the villain in the film, uh, which I also think would would make the film better. If if like, but that ending, as heart wrenching as it is, as beautifully done as it is, uh, 
what is it trying to say? You know, is it trying to say that, hey, this is tragic that these people can be together. They shouldn't have followed their dreams. Or is it trying to say they should have followed their dreams and it was worth it? You know, like it just doesn't – I don't think it really adds up to anything in my opinion. Um, like I don't think it's – it has the courage of its convictions and that's disappointing. Uh, I have a lot of complicated feelings about La La Land and uh, yeah. seeing it again live really crystallized those. It was enough for you to see it again though. Live. And there Brian's is a, extra for that too, right? Yeah, yeah. And and here's the thing: like, even as I'm saying that, I think there's a lot of problems with this film, especially thematically. The just you got to admire Damien Chazelle for having this vision of uh, this movie that's in many ways a tribute to Hollywood, a tribute to the movies of old, and having it like done in these incredibly technically difficult. Uh, sequences where these people mm-hmm. sing and dance often in one long continuous shot that is hard to do even if you're a filmmaker at the top of your game and uh, the fact that he 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 had this vision he pursued it it was very difficult to get this movie financed because people didn't think that musicals uh, did very well of course the movie then went on to become a smash success and Damien Chazelle won best director uh, at the Oscars so uh, you got to admire the gumption the persistence uh, the determination the vision um, so yeah, yeah. I, I left it hey, feeling Dave, very torn. Go ahead, Jeff. Do you, do you think that any of the thematic issues would have been solved for you if that trumpet player really nailed that solo? The answer is yes. Yeah. Undoubt, un- unquestionably. It, it unquestionably. really hinged on that. Yeah. My question is, uh, where is Whiplash live? Because I would pay <laughs> money to see that. Yeah. It's just, it just constantly they're yeah. stopping and not their, not their tempo. Stopping. And also by the end, like the drummer is just a bloody mess. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> they need like six drummers to do the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah uh, I, I would definitely see. It was kind of weird. Like there were moments in the movie that are like kind of throwaway musical moments. You know, like someone sits down at a piano and plays – uh, a few notes and like that was performed live too so uh, it made me feel wow. yeah like what would a whiplash live uh, ver- version be anyway if you have a Great chance idea. to see music live like uh, you know uh, uh, it's amazing it's amazing that like we live mm-hmm. in a world where thousands of people will turn out to see movie music played live i, I never that's thought good. i would see yeah. the day and they were playing awesome. a phantom thread with a live orchestra here in brooklyn this weekend i missed that unfortunately yeah. that's just so but that awesome. would have been my third time seeing the movie so i'd, I'd that's why I was kind of judging it, but it's so awesome yeah, that movie music has become like this widely accepted art form that has value. Like I just, yeah. you know, uh, I've been rooting for music, movie music for decades, and uh, it's great to see that uh, people are are turning out for it and paying money to see it. So, uh, okay, well, that's La La Land live in concert. They're touring uh, around the country right now. So if you have a chance to see it and you don't think La La Land is problematic in any way, I think you'll really like it. <laughs> uh, Devinder Hardwar, you've been watching a couple things. Yeah, uh, I've been watching Travelers, which is a Netflix show that you've probably seen on your feed and probably haven't watched. Uh, But I just want to say this show is great. It is perfectly bingeable. And I think uh, it does it does so many things right. And uh, the basic concept of the show is kind of like you take Terminator and you mix it with Quantum Leap and Mm. that's it. Because the show is about yeah, there you go, right? And there is no follow up to get all of our listeners like watching the show because it's uh it's about uh, you know there's a post apocalyptic feature which we never see, uh but the story is they are able to send the consciousness of people in the future back in time to the moment when people in the past are about to die, so they're not like ripping a life away, they're just like inhabiting the body 
after somebody is supposed to die and technically, you know, not changing, I don't know, the state of consciousness in the past or something. Uh, but they are being transported back into the past to stop, you know, the future apocalypse, like stop bad things from happening. Uh, they're working. So it's one of those shows where it's sort of like a team and they get together and they have missions every episode. And I kind of love those shows. I miss them a lot. Um, and, you know, the show just kind of hits all the marks for me. I really like the cast. Uh, it stars Eric McCormick from Will and Grace uh, as an FBI agent who's also one of these, you know, future consciousnesses sent back in the past. And he works with a team of people and they just have to do what the people in charge from the future tell them to do. They get these missions and the assumption is that the person in charge is kind of like all knowing they know what they're doing. So they have to go, you know, fetch this box or something. Um, they assuming it'll have some deep impact in the future. And that's pretty much the entire show, but I think it's really well written. I like the characters. Um, it's just like, it's just good TV. It's a new show from, uh, Brad Wright. And he was the guy behind all those Stargate shows. And I've never watched any of those. But you could tell, like, this guy just knows how to, like, mold good TV. Like, a group of people solving, you know, solving crimes, saving the future. And that's pretty much it. Um, and it's one of those shows where it kind of, like, every episode ends in a way where you just want to keep watching it. So, perfect for Netflix. Perfectly bingeable. I hear season two gets even better. I'm about halfway through season one. Uh, but it's just so much fun. If any of these ideas sound interesting to you or just, like, you know, cool time travel stuff. Uh, or if you like Quantum Leap. Uh, check it out. They have a lot of fun with this format, right? Because when when they're sending consciousnesses back from the future, uh, they don't know what kind of body it'll end up in sometimes. So sometimes it'll end up in, you know, somebody who is very different from the person who gets sent back. Uh, there's a point where an entire, like, school bus filled uh, with cult people just get, you know, all get... Uh, consciousness wiped at one point and it's an easy way to bring back like 12 people from the future or something uh i hear they play around with these concepts a lot especially even more in season two so just a lot of fun jeff i think you will really like this and dave like there's a lot of good time paradox stuff in the show so it's it's fun and they really know what they're doing very cool uh the show's yeah. travelers and it's available on netflix right now right yeah it is and don't confuse it with timeless which is the sean ryan show about literal time travelers um <laughs> So that that's another thing, yeah. uh, which it's not as good as this. Like, I saw a couple episodes of that. That's fine. But Travelers is good. Watch that. All right. And anything else you've been watching, Devendra? And also, Mozart in the Jungle uh, is back for season four on Amazon Prime. Uh, I just want to say I've, I've talked about the show a lot. I feel like every season I've seen it. Uh, the, the show's great. It is one of those pieces of media that I think in some ways makes the world better. It's just like a pure joy and happiness kind of like encapsulated in a TV show with great characters, great actors, uh, great music, too. Like, Dave, you, you would be all over this because it's about uh, a New York symphony. Um, it's, it's just so much fun. I just really like it. It's a really sweet show, really meaningful show sometimes. It's just like fun in all the right ways. So if you haven't seen it yet, just watch it. Uh, it's a weird show, right? Because it was winning Golden Globes before I think even most people... Uh, we're watching it so <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing but yeah i want more people to see it check it out it's mozart in the jungle season four it's on amazon prime all right before we move on um i want to thank all the people that donated to the podcast this week um and i want to start by thanking landon little also maxime b from quebec canada who writes in this message 
along with, with uh, their donation. Hi, Dave, Jeff, and Devendra. There are two things I'd like to say. First, I found out about the Slash Film Podcast about four years ago, if my memory serves me right. My very first episode was the Noah one with Jeff Kanata as a guest. I remember thinking during the first hour, this is the greatest podcast ever. To this day, I still believe that to be true, even after I've gone through many others. Since then, I've listened every week. I'm excited about taking the bus to college because it gives me time to relax and listen to my favorite show. Now that that's out of the way, I want to tell you the reason I wanted to write to you guys. I recently went on a trip to Iceland, and obviously we had to check out the capital, Reykjavik. While looking at a map of the city, a name I recognized popped up, the Iceland Phallological Museum. That's right. I remember Dave talking about a documentary about the Iceland Phallological Museum. So we had to look it up, and I got to say, I didn't expect to have so much fun looking at a bunch of dicks for an hour. <laughs> it actually was a unique and interesting experience, and all thanks to the Awesome Slash Film Podcast. Thank you for everything you've done, and there's a little, here's a little something so you can continue doing what has given me great pleasure over the past few years. Uh, that's from Maxime from Quebec, and he's referring to a movie that I talked about here on the podcast called The Final Member, which is a documentary about uh, an Icelandic uh, museum that's just full of penises from all kinds of different uh, creatures. Uh, it's a solid documentary. Solid documentary. <laughs> uh, also want to thank Mitchell Thompson, Wang Zen He, and Eric Schick uh, for their contributions at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, help us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. You can also go to PayPal.me slash Filmcast. That's PayPal.me slash and then the word Filmcast if you want to donate. We really appreciate it. Let's move on to our review of Annihilation. Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger. It's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. That was from the trailer for Annihilation, the newest film uh, by director Alex Garland. It was also adapted by uh, Alex Garland. Uh, based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer. Anyone read the book Annihilation by any chance? Yes. Yeah? Did yeah. you read the book? Love I it. heard like about 15 to 20% of it makes it into the film. If that. If yeah. that. Oh, that's if how that. much of the book I read, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it quite works like that, Christy, but, you know, fair oh. enough. Um, uh, you could say, the, the, yeah, the movie is like a mutation of the book, mm. which uh, oh, is oddly go. fitting. Yeah. Nicely done. All right, uh, well, according to the IMDb plot summary, a biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition where the laws of nature don't apply. Now, a quick word about the uh, business side of this film. Uh, <laughs> imagine, if you will, a, uh, a sci-fi movie directed by an extremely well-respected sci-fi director, headlined uh, by an Academy Award winner, uh, and like the, the studio just selling off the international rights uh, you know, before the movie even hits theaters in the U.S., uh, I feel like in general that should be a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Annihilation—they sold—they sold the international rights uh, for this movie. 
And I, to be honest, I think they were they were right to do that. Um, I mean, just because it is a punishing uh, box office world out there right now. You know, like and this movie made I think eleven million dollars over the weekend. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, we we could argue that it's because Paramount didn't put enough marketing muscle into it, uh, and maybe they could have opened it better. But you look at other movies right like uh life and the fact that they also sold the cloverfield paradox netflix um life is really really good one i think uh in in terms of a comparison because that movie bombed in in the united states and the the math starts to make sense IndieWire has an article about this entitled uh annihilation on netflix moviegoers need to take responsibility for paramount's controversial deal i don't know if i agree with the headline of this article by zach sharf but zach sharf does write this piece here that i just um uh, that just like bowled me over when when uh, I read it. He, he writes here, quote, Many angry fans may not realize that this deal was made following one of the worst financial years in Paramount's history. Nearly every Paramount release in 2017 was a financial loss. From Ghost in the Shell to Baywatch to Transformers the Last Night to Suburbicon. The last I want to night- point out one that he doesn't mention. Uh, Guys, I'm- Monster Trucks was last year. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I mean seriously, yeah. Monster Trucks was a hugely expensive movie that only made three thirty three million. Man. Like, it's an interesting thing, and I don't want to totally throw off your your conversation about the article, but it's an interesting thing because if you look at the movies that Paramount put out last year, it was Monster Trucks, Rings, Downsizing Mother, Suburbicon, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Triple X Three, The Return of Xander Cage, Baywatch, Daddy's Home Two, and Transformers: The Last Night. Like, to their credit, they released a ton of very different movies. Yeah. And most of them failed. Yep, yep, yep. That's um, a bad year. It was a bad year for them. Uh, also, uh, he, he continues here, the last night was the top grossing film that Paramount released in the U.S., but it made a franchise low with $130 million. Um, along with Daddy's Home 2, it was the only Paramount film to break $100 million domestically. Uh, Paramount suffered a similar fate in 2016 with few hits outside of Arrival, Fences, and 10 Cloverfield Lane. The studio's top 2016 grocer, Star Trek Beyond, was a franchise low with $158 million in the U.S. That, that is a punishing couple of years. And what's mm-hmm. fascinating is in 2016, they released uh, Paramount released 10 Cloverfield Lane and Arrival. Uh, both movies that got critical acclaim and made a ton of money. And then this year, 2018, they released, uh, they sold off Cloverfield Paradox um, to Netflix. And then the closest movie there is to like an arrival, uh, which I would argue is like Annihilation, which kind of has to do with aliens and sci-fi and it's moody. Um, it's more cerebral. More cerebral. Mm-hmm. They sold off the international rights. And that is quite a way to, it's like a sign of the times. This is a sign of, um, how badly theatrical movie going is doing in the United States, um, but yeah. you got to hand it to but them. But also, right? like Ex Machina, right, didn't do really well at all. In uh, it, it, so did, yeah, it did all right. It did all right. It was a, it was a much right. cheaper film than Annihilation. Yeah, yeah. Um, like but, I mean, critics love that movie, and I think genre fans love that movie. But I don't, you know, like if you asked just a random person who's going to the theater, like, do you know who Alex Garland is? They probably don't. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, but I just feel like this movie. A, bombing at the box office, and B, mm-hmm. uh, its international rights being sold off uh, mm-hmm. is just a, a really bad sign, not only for movie going in general, but also for Paramount specifically. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, maybe not, right? Like, that's what I'm saying, because Ex Machina, 
right? That had a traditional release, right? And limited release. But that movie had, what, production budget of $50 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Uh, There's no way Ex Machina cost $50 million. And worldwide gross of 36 million. Yeah, you're right. So, so. It, it didn't do that well, but it did. Uh, I, my guess is it did well in home video. It also won uh, an Oscar, right? So mm-hmm. um, also that, that's also a big deal. So uh, yeah, Annihilation costs much more money than, mm-hmm. uh, than Ex Machina did. And uh, I think it'll probably do roughly the same amount of box office. Um, yeah. So it, it is a bummer that uh, I, I, here, here's one one last thing I'll say before we move on to the movie itself, which is that I admire Paramount for continuing to try to take chances. I mean, they made they made and released Mother, Darren Aronofsky's mm-hmm. movie last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie budgeted at thirty million dollars, I think, and it only made what twenty five million domestically. They're taking chances um, with movies like Silence, you know. Uh, and even though none of these movies are doing well, none of them are making much money at all, uh, a lot of them are great films that, that I think will be remembered years from now. So, uh, all that said, I actually, sorry, I just want to tag on to that, that, and additionally, like, I understand that like monster trucks and triple X three aren't quote unquote, like great movies. Like they're not going to be in the canon and whatever, but those are movies that fully committed to a completely bonkers premise, and they're really <laughs> fun to watch. No, like, sincerely, though, I think they're both on Hulu now. I know Monster Trucks is. But, I mean, like, <laughs> they're they're movies that, like, I went to go see and honestly was, as I sat down, thought, like, this is going to be a, tra- a train wreck. But they were really fun. And it's, like, Monster Trucks is, like, the 90s movies, like, Encino Man or something. And then Triple X 3 is like Fast and the Furious level bonkers. And oh, yeah. it's so much fun. And it's actually like wildly inclusive. And like, I, you know, I, I admire that Paramount was taking a huge amount of risks last year. And it's, it's a bummer that, you know, a lot of them didn't pay off. But I mean, I respect that they got so ballsy with it, to be perfectly frank. And I'm kind of, I kind of get why they're, they're like, they're, they made the movie they made with Annihilation and with Cloverfield because their sci-fi stuff is, as we pointed out, like, it, it doesn't do very well for them. And it's like, maybe it's a, I, I don't know that it's an issue of quality as much as, like, maybe it's just hard to sell that stuff. And, like, you it know. Totally. It's totally hard to sell it in, in this environment. Um, right. And like we talked about with Mute, like, Netflix knows how to do that, where they know how to hook audiences, it seems, or so it seems, again, in the, the mystery box that is Netflix. It seems like that seems to work better for them. Well, Christy, now that you've finished praising Monster Trucks and Triple X and Alexander Cage, I know. tell us what you think of this highly respected sci-fi film, Annihilation. So I didn't like Annihilation. And I understand this is the part where viewers can be like, well, she liked Monster Trucks. And that's fair. I think I just did do that. I think I did do that just now, yeah. if, that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, I, that's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, inevitably that happens where someone will remember one review they disagreed with on me. And like, I'll say, like, I don't like this movie. And they're like, yeah, well, you felt this way about this movie. And I'm yep. like, you really showed me. Annihilation, um, not as good as Monster Trucks. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to put that in the show notes. <laughs> that, yeah, fair. Um, no, but uh, Annihilation, <laughs> I uh, I really thought I would love it because I loved Ex Machina. And, like, I like the stuff he's written. Like, I like 28 Days Later. I like Sunshine. But, like, Ex Machina, I was really impressed by how he took effectively the fairy tale genre and spun it into a sci-fi world that he was able to very leanly create with these really riveting performances and this very tight concept to talk about 
our society. And I just fell fell head over heels for that movie. I thought the performances were amazing. I thought the visuals were stunning. But most of all, I really thought the story just I kept wanting to watch it and I kept wanting to because I really love the way he took a risk in that you start the story with one character and finish with another. And I thought that was really bold and exciting. And so I was very excited for Annihilation. I really like the cast. Um, I like Natalie Portman, but specifically I was really excited about uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. And I'm a big fan of Oscar Isaac and uh, Tessa Thompson. Gina Rodriguez, Gina Rodriguez I'm less familiar with because I don't I haven't watched her show. But she's great in this. The performances are really mm-hmm. interesting. But my problem with this movie is that I don't feel like the storytelling is as as tight. I don't feel like the world building is as clearly realized. And the biggest thing for me was I didn't connect emotionally to the main character. So for a lot of the movie, I felt really disconnected from what was going on, which is, you know, kind of my whole the kiss, jam the kiss man. of death the kiss of death yeah. Any movie yeah uh well sorry to hear you were not a fan christy but jeff canada what were your overall thoughts on annihilation i like annihilation more than ex machina um, um by quite a wide margin in fact i what was I, your thoughts on ex machina I liked Ex Machina. i liked it i liked it a lot um i didn't love it as much as i think everybody else here but i did i did like it a lot um but this is not a referendum on Ex Machina. This is uh, this is <laughs> about Annihilation, which I think is an extraordinary movie. It is the kind of sci-fi that you don't get to see uh, anymore. It is full of really fresh ideas and and visual concepts. It's so hard now to make a movie where in, in a genre movie specifically where I found myself going, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that expressed this way. Uh, it, it really felt like from a design perspective, from a uh, visual conceptual level, it was showing me a vision of something completely new. And and that's really cool. I mean, it has clearly has influences that I can, uh, you know, things that it, it's like, but really it's its own, the, the use of color, the use of nature, uh, the things in the movie that it does so so well and so uniquely, I think, um, set it apart just on that level. But the movie works as a, a beautiful metaphor, which we can get into in spoilers, and, and I'm taken by uh, that aspect of it. And just on a pure moment-to-moment, edge-of-my-seat tension, I was completely hooked by this movie. Now, I think it's hard to watch Annihilation and not compare it to Arrival, and I think Arrival is a superior film on every single level. And even the first, I would say the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of Annihilation, I kept going, oh my gosh, they're, the setup here is so clumsy and so unbelievable and really a uh, a big entity, a big uh, government installation would work like this. Where's all, where are all the details? Like arrival was so good at showing me of of how this all was put together and how, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the structure of what, how all these government facilities work with each other. And like, that felt so believable. It's like, Oh my God, if, if aliens were to land in a as they do in arrival, this is how the government might actually react. Like this feels very believable. Completely plausible. Whereas it's just, it's not that, in Annihilation. Yes. Yeah. And I think there's a good reason for that, which reveals itself later. 
but the beginning of this movie, I was like, oh man, that's just, it's unfortunate. It feels like we're, we're getting the Cliff's Notes version of Arrival. But then the movie blossoms into its own unique tale. And I, I was very connected with Natalie Portman. In fact, I mean, it takes spoilers to talk about it, but I, 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 I'm so taken by her journey on a, on a metaphorical level and sort of what she's going through with her family. We'll get into all that later, but I, there are sequences in this that are some of the most thrilling and tension filled I've seen in a while. There, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully realized. I think there's so much to like here. I'm very saddened to see it not doing well in the in the in the box office because I think more people should be seeing it. But I guess the question for you, Jeff. I mean, uh, this movie got a C Cinema score. When I watched it, I I knew in my heart this would not be a movie that would resonate with wide audiences. Oh did yeah. You not, did you not feel the same way? Absolutely. I don't think this is big popcorn entertainment. I'm just saying I'm sad that you're, you're sad that isn't... the movie going public won't. Yes, embrace I'm it. sad that the the audience that would love this movie hasn't found it because I, I think I there is. Well, maybe they there, have there found are... it. Is what I'm saying. Like that it's oh, you're just saying that's just not, the size of that audience. Yeah, it's not a very big audience. Right. That's all I'm saying. I think there are definitely more people that would love this than have seen it for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, um, Devendra Hardwar. Yeah, I I love this movie. Completely. But at the same time, I understand that it's not for everybody just watching it. And when you get to, you know, some of the later parts of this movie, it is it is bonkers. It is like Hodorowsky. It is like, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I, I think like the Netflix strategy internationally, while it's not great because, uh, you know, everyone in those territories can't see the movie on a big screen and it looks amazing and needs a good sound system. I'm glad at least, you know, there's a way for this movie not to be a complete uh, financial failure because I want more movies like this. I love exactly what Alex Garland is doing here. Like I loved Ex Machina. Uh, this movie is very different though. And I think if you're going into this looking for the same thing, like it's just very, Ex Machina was a story about artificial intelligence, you know, and humanity, like trying to build technology and control these things. And there was a certain logic to it. It was a cold and very direct movie. And I love all those things about it. And this movie is not that at all. It is the sort of thing that's like it is ex- exploring like literal alien concepts in ways that we can't even really encapsulate uh, as humans. And it just kind of handles it all in a dreamlike state. Uh, not everything's explained. Uh, but I, I kind of love that thing. Right. Like that's the sort of movie where most people would be turned off. And honestly, like if it's when it's done badly, I've seen a lot of them, too. Um, you know, they can just be boring and dull. Uh, that's not the case here. Cause I think this movie is still an effective character study. Um, you know, the visuals are so great. The emotion, the atmosphere that they set up is, uh, incredible. And just want to say, like, I love the entire cast of this film. This movie proves why, uh, you know, I've always loved Natalie Portman as an actress and this, it uses her perfectly, like just her steely gaze. Um, there's a shot that's in the trailer. So it's not a, not a huge, reveal um but there's a shot of her just like kneeling and like going to town with a machine gun and it's it's really short but it's like you could see the strength of her in that moment and like just her ability to even do that effectively there's uh proficiency there uh this character is both strong yet vulnerable um i think very very logical yet at times completely irrational 
and I love how she balances all those uh, the the dualities of all those things. Um, at the same time, everybody else in this cast is amazing. Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, completely enigmatic. You never Haunting. know what's going on in her. Yeah, she is like somebody who's just like kind of accepted uh, a certain sort of destruction in her life, and it's it's kind of really strange to see. And Gina Rodriguez is incredible. Uh, Jane the Virgin just. A completely different character. Like Jane the Virgin, she is super bubbly, super happy, like just nice, sweet girl. Uh, here, she is like, uh, she she is, yeah, she she is very tough and very different. Uh, well, let me just say, oh, well, especially. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I just no, never, she's also very charismatic and very yes, like yes, sexual, yes. which I was excited about. Very sexual. Like, like she's she is very charismatic. I'm not going to mention anything uh, like yeah. towards the later two thirds of the movie. But let's just say like I would not have expected certain things from her. That's all. Um, so I think this movie just uses everybody so well. And yeah, Oscar Isaac here is here and just doing amazing work as always. So this is the type of movie I'd like to see more. Um, you know, it's an alien story that feels completely alien. And I love that feeling as an audience member of not knowing what's happening and like just embracing the unknown. I, I, that's all fascinating to me. Uh, I'll have a few brief th- thoughts, but we really need to talk about spoilers for me to talk about what I what I don't like sure. about this film. Um, I thought this movie is okay. It had some really brilliant sequences. I love love the atmosphere of of the movie. Uh, extremely creepy, um, but. Overall, it just didn't do it for me. I think, and I'll get into this later, but but it it had some sequences and some concepts that I thought were absolutely brilliant. And I, I just thought, oh my gosh, I could spend a whole month thinking about just that one concept. Mm-hmm. And then there's one concept in it that I was like, how has nobody ever not done this before? Right, right, right. And then, <laughs> uh, or, or how has nobody ever done this before? I think is what you mean to say, Jeff. But um, how is everybody? Oh, not how is everybody? Done this? Never not done this not before. That was everyone. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Everyone. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then there's stuff in this movie that I just think is really poorly executed. It's extremely clunky and obvious. And uh, it, it is a movie that's one of the smartest films I've seen in the last year and also one of the dumbest films at the same time. Like It's extremely smart about some aspects and extremely dumb about others. And I know that's extremely vague, but I can't really say anything more. I'll just say, yeah. It's uh, it's worth seeing. It's like a provocative, yeah. uh, original science fiction movie. It has see a great the performances. Yeah, if see you in the, can, see in the yeah. theater if yeah. you can. If you're in the U.S., you know you can't. If you're outside the U.S., yeah, big screen. And also, great. it's a great movie to see with a crowd. Just like you can feel, yeah. this, like everyone's skin crawling. You can. Oh man, if you're I in a good crowd, there was definitely movie. a moment in the Perfect. movie after a big uh, set yep. piece where everyone unclenched. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I definitely definitely felt that. Listen. I never unclench. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, so those are our overall thoughts. Devendra and Jeff really liked it. Christy and I weren't as big of a fans. Uh, let's dive into why. Coming up now with spoilers uh, for Annihilation starting right at this moment. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. I want to talk about the Nightmare Bear because that is, <laughs> to me, the strongest section of the film is the Nightmare oh, Bear. So. Because there, 
I really got a sense of the world he was building. I really got a sense of this idea of refraction in a much clearer way. I like the flower people. Like from that point in the movie, first like a stretch, I felt like I got what was going on. The but flower like, when, people, just like looking at them, is yeah, so unsettling. So yeah. unsettling. And like that stuff worked for me. It's not like I didn't like this across the board. There were parts of it that worked for me, but like when by the time we get to the flower people, we're more than an hour in, right? Like it takes a long time. Yes. When it's just like when the first thing they see is the flowers on the bridge, that does nothing for me because it just looks so fake. It's so it looked so much like they went to Michael's and got a bunch of fake flowers and I just couldn't <laughs> couldn't sink into it. And then when you see these like tumorous growths of like decay or color or whatever they're supposed to be they just look like balls of yarn like i was having a really hard time sinking into the visual storytelling of the film but, but the there, there's the alligator attack and the the great shot from the mouth like, uh, the alligator alligator attack is yeah. amazing the 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 swimming pool with the exploded dude on the wall oh, oh my god i mean but see that stuff again it's like the alligator thing was cool but these things didn't feel coherent to me it wasn't until we got to the flower people and then conversely the bear where I could really see, because they're like, oh, the alligator just kept growing teeth. And I'm like, and they're like, like a shark. And I'm like, okay, but it just looks like an alligator with a lot of teeth. Or it look, just looks like a flower with a bunch of different flowers. So you're on saying it. like, like visually it didn't, it didn't work for you, Christine? Yeah, like saying? visually, yeah. I didn't feel like when I watched Ex Machina, I felt like every new scene was unlocking a different room in that house. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in this, it felt way more amorphous, which I understand is the point, because you effectively have this alien life that it's like figuring things out. Right, I right. get it. But visually, it's not taking me on a journey. It has me like glancing around going, wait, what are we doing? <laughs> it wasn't until the shack with the flower people and the nightmare bear, as I'm calling him. I wrote about it on Fangirls. <laughs> I have like a whole thing about the nightmare bear. But like that to me was when the visuals got really interesting and really strong. And like the nightmare bear in particular, like the idea of refraction, I thought was taken in a really interesting way. And like where the face was familiar, but horrifying, but that scream was so mm-hmm. upsetting. Ugh. That whole sequence I thought was really wonderful from Gina Rodriguez's performance to the way the thing sneaks up to the sound design. I thought that was all really complete and wonderful. I wish that the whole film had right. me as locked in as that sequence. But notably, but- that is a sequence where Natalie Portman's not doing very much and we're mm-hmm. relying on a lot of other things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is the most traditionally like horror movie sequence of the mm-hmm. movie, right? Like it, it builds up the tension. Like we we kind of know where everything is. It just feels like Alex Garland having fun with a horror movie premise. But I think for me, um, what's unsettling to me about the film and certainly the book too, like the book kind of ha- you know has a lot of the stuff in it too. And we're not going to get too deep into that. Um, it's the idea that, uh, you know, I, I consider myself an atheist and I think I have a certain understanding of like science and how things work. And as you start to enter this world, you're like, oh, these, these flower breeds are just like intermingling. That's, that shouldn't be right. Uh, it's like a slow creep of just like, this is unholy. This is unnatural. This is not the way our world and our reality works. And to, just to me, as somebody who like enjoys science and enjoys like oh, I, uh, trying to understand how the world works, to have that concept break down slowly, uh, mm-hmm. like the reality around them, like I thought that was really effective and really subtle. Like, uh, and you get we get the shark, or we get the alligator with shark teeth, pretty like pretty soon as they get into there. And I thought that was like it's uh, the pacing of the film is pretty ingenious because like there are the slow moments, there are the like great uh, background moments. And then there are just like the traditional set piece moments. There's like, you know, beyond that, like they get to the, you know, the mess hall they find the video. And then the video just turns into this, like it's we're watching saw we're watching hostile 
or something mm-hmm. like just like things you would not expect. So I really appreciate how the movie juggled that. But yeah, if the imagery didn't work for you, if the con- like if the concept of just like nature kind of failing, our understanding of nature and reality failing, like if that alone isn't disturbing to you, yeah, I'm sure the movie would hit a lot less, you know, well. I think uh, there were uh, th- this movie made a few missteps in, in my opinion, and I-, I was trying to say earlier. There are some moments in the movie that are really sublime and subtle, and I'm like, oh my god! Like, I, like for instance, um, the moment at the end when she encounters her double, you know, and all how that's executed, and and when she finds the videotape with Oscar Isaac's double on it, like all that stuff, I thought was really compelling. And then there's just a bunch of stuff that really rubbed me the wrong way you know I, so, I, I wish you were sitting next to me as i was watching this movie i just like to look over and just see dave's like expression of first of all you know benedict wong i think like his role is a complete uh, uh. waste not only uh is he given an incredibly thankless task of being mm-hmm. a clunky exposition machine uh but i i don't know what the function of that was like how really? how did we how did we how is this movie better from you knowing the ending before the movie right, begins. Right. I, I don't like if you're going to spoil that everyone dies on the mission except for Natalie Portman. Uh, I, I expect you to have a good reason for that, and I didn't feel like the movie justified that decision. So, um, you know, those things like whenever you do the sort of like flash forward, you know, at the beginning, yeah, I guess it has to be justified. But I thought for like from my perspective, right, Benedict Wong as the confused as fuck audience member. Just serving that role. Like, wait, how did this happen? What's going on here? He is a good audience surrogate. But again, this is kind of my point about how uh, the movie at at times expects you to be really smart and and it doesn't spell things out. And at other times, it treats the audience like they're dumb. And the Benedict Wong character treats the audience like they're dumb. Like, it's an audience surrogate. Well, I mean, it's an audience surrogate asking all these incredibly basic questions about what happened. Uh, and if the audience presumably was smart enough, you would not need that character. So I, I just thought, and, and then the, you know, there's other moments in the movie like um, uh, when Jennifer Jason Lee, who I thought gave a extremely inconsistent performance in my opinion. Uh, like at the, when you meet her, she's extremely sedate, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, okay, this is really interesting. We haven't seen her be sedate." And then at random points throughout the film, she just turns into Jennifer Jason Lee from The Hateful Eight. Was, uh, was she sedate though? Like you look at that, uh, you look at that first scene again. Look at what she's doing with her hands. Like look at what's happening there. Like it's, I don't know. Like, I'm just so, saying as a fact, she was extremely quiet. Like she, she's her. She she's was speaking, extremely quiet. She's speaking very softly and gently. I mean, I think I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is like an interest. I've never, I, I don't, don't remember the last time I saw her play a character like this. Um, mm-hmm. But then during the mission, you know, that that type of character sure. was jettisoned whenever it served the plot. Then sure. later on, uh, you know, there's that scene when she's she's like everything breaking into its component parts, annihilation, and I'm just like my body's cringing so hard because it's like. This movie gets you to the point where you need to go and often goes a little bit farther uh, or further, I should say, and uh, and spells things out in a way that's really obvious that I thought um, just, you know, I, I got a bad impression from it. You know, like okay. it, it made me feel like the movie did not trust its, it trusted its audience too much sometimes and then did not trust its audience at all other times. Um, and so I found it to be a very uneven experience. I mean, so. that's you know a line of dialogue which is certainly on the nose but it's a line of dialogue before like 20 minutes 
of pure like visual exactly. insanity. It, that's what I'm saying. Is like there, there's like so, amazing moments, and then it's like stupid moments. Like when she's like when she uh, Natalie Portman's looking at the wall, and she says. It's like a tumor. You know, it's like, okay, thank you. I already got that from the 15 times you referenced something like that earlier in the film. <laughs> it, just, it just is like baffling. The movie is baffling to me. There's, there's times where mm. it's really smart and there's times when it's really dumb. So I, I found it to be like an inconsistent experience overall. Um, but uh, let's talk about that ending. You know, what did you guys think of, uh, of this whole uh, – the, the idea of the movie as a metaphor. Jeff, you referred to this earlier and we got this great email from a, a listener named Dalton who writes in – Saw Annihilation this afternoon. Uh, the book Annihilation is very personal to me. I was born with a heart condition that has been with me throughout my life. I've had seven surgeries since I was two weeks old, the last one being in 2014. I've dealt with anxiety, some depression. I'm very introverted. I'm going to skip forward in this email here. Um, the ending was jaw-dropping, taking the book into a completely different place. As I was finding myself thinking about the ending, I'm drawn to its depiction of depression and self-destruction. When Lena had the copy of her where it mirrors her every action, but when trying to get away from it, it attacks you. That is depression. That is self-destruction. You get in your own way. Depression smothers you no matter how hard you try to avoid it. Eventually, you come to terms with it, and the person you were, you were is simply a copy of your former self walking through life. Both the book and the film are about depression, although through different lenses. I honestly cannot remember the last time I felt so messed up by a film. I can see how people didn't care for it, but I think those looking further uh, than what's simply at face value will see a deeply searing movie. That's Dalton from Florida writing into slash filmcast at gmail.com. Jeff, you were talking about some of the, some of the metaphors in this movie. You know, what, what were some of the metaphors that really uh, struck you? Was there any... Any metaphor that you thought like this? This is what the movie is for me, you know. Like, yeah, I think what Dalton wrote resonates uh, very profoundly and did when I saw the movie. I, I I think there's a a reading of this movie that says uh, everything after the moment that Oscar Isaac's returns is not real. Like, it's Mm -hmm. all about her dealing with her intense depression Mm -hmm. about and guilt. Uh, about him dying in the line of duty, right? Or, or not even about him dying in the line of duty, about him going away and not coming back and her having questions about what that is and dealing with that that change in her life, that change in her... And having an her, affair during the right. movie, like that is the guilt, yeah. That guilt, right. And But but it's this is a movie all about things changing uh, based on... And, and, the the change happening being this malignancy that's reflected in and in, in on itself that you know it's all internal changes that are happening despite your best efforts and things mutating and become a horrible reflection of yourself and sort of replacing you at a certain place with it, with this version of you that is empty and not yourself and i think uh you can definitely read this movie as a metaphor from that moment of of her trying to deal with the loss of her husband and the guilt of cheat or you know how she may consider mm-hmm. it cheating on him or being unfaithful or whatever it is, um, and I found that very powerful. I mean, I think the movie very much is about change, is about the different ways we deal with change and having something to lose or not having something to lose. And Jennifer Jason Lee's character like w- revealed that she does have cancer and kind of this desperation among all of them to go into this, into this, uh, suicide mission and what that's like and why people keep, why do people keep feeding themselves into this shimmer? You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is a metaphor. And 
I kind of forgave a lot of the problems I had at the beginning of it feeling hollow and not uh, not grounded in a, the kind of reality that Arrival is because I felt like it was abstracting that and going, yeah, it, none of that matters because none of this really is real. There is a level of surreal happening because of the emotional stakes of what this woman is going through. Mm-hmm. And I found that all to be really powerful and persuasive and, and quite moving also. And I, that's why I found the ending to be so moving. I didn't love the last sort of like dun, 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 which felt very, very much like a nod to Ex Machina. I haven't read the books. So I don't know if that's consistent mm-hmm. to the books. but No, it's wildly different. Yeah, it, it felt so, like... So we're, ta- we're talking about the very last shot of the film, right? Is that what yeah, that, yeah, that... Unfortunately, I didn't really like, but I felt all of that leading up to that moment was so mm-hmm. powerful. That entire sequence inside the lighthouse uh, is – I was I was on the edge of my seat throughout and just emotionally charged and kind of um, – you know, I, I, I felt it worked on a number of levels yeah. and visually it was like something I'd never seen before. Like, like modern dance at one point. Like Yeah, yeah. yeah. And her like – being trapped by that other thing that does what she does but won't let her go and impresses her against the wall yeah, and very upsetting like, very upsetting very upsetting and 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 so effective so I, I i mean i was taken by all of that and i thought it certainly like the best sci-fi works on a number of levels mm-hmm. i do want to bring up the final scene real quickly too because you mentioned that like it's do you guys have the assumption that oh man we don't know if she's uh, she's a clone or not and that's the the real twist because I think it's yeah what was your interpretation because my interpretation yeah. was that that is the other her Oscar Isaac it is the clone of Oscar Isaac I think that's pretty yeah, clear yeah, yeah. Um, that's clear it's it's a version of Oscar Isaac that formed you know forget why like uh, it's not really clear to me why the Shimmer only makes two of something as opposed to four or 16 of something. But, okay, mm. so there's two of Oscar Isaac and the original copy uh, killed himself with a phosphorus grenade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never got the impression that that was uh, her clone. I thought that oh, was yeah, original uh, Lena or original Natalie Portman's character. Original Lena, but also original Lena transformed. Changed. Yeah, I think exactly. that's changed. Exactly. I, yeah. I, I, I wrote about this at Pajiba. Uh, I think the ending, I, I think that there's there is some merit to the idea that it is the clone, but then the whole thing is an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't think that that theory follows through because when the Oscar Isaac clone came back, he didn't remember much about his life before the Shimmer. He remembered where he lived and he remembered her face, but like, and her name, but like nothing yeah. else really. He's but, an empty vessel, yeah. Right, but Lena is giving like a very thorough breakdown of what happened, and she spent less time in the Shimmer. So I think it's unlikely that it's her clone. I think instead that it is like the Nightmare Bear, where when she killed whatever this entity was, she took a piece of it with her. And we already know it was in her blood and all this. So it's it's established that there's something of the Shimmer is now inside her. I'm less clear on why the Shimmer falling of pieces all of a sudden Oscar, Oscar Isaac's clone is okay. Um, yeah. I didn't follow that logic and right. uh, I did read about what happens in the book in hopes that that might give me a clue, but they're both very different endings. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's, I think it's that Alex Garland is not looking for you to find the details in that specific way. This is a much more cerebral brand of sci-fi. I do want to say that I think Dalton's uh, conver- uh, email, uh, which I did read in full um, is, I think it's a very good take on the film and, and I completely appreciate that, you know, people are pulling different things from this. And um, I think the uh, conversation, about depression is a very solid reading of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for me, I didn't react to it. 
I think um, that for me, this movie is like Mother, the Darren Aronofsky movie, in the sense that like mm-hmm. I don't feel like uh, like Mother is a movie where uh, everyone has a different reading of what that movie means, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, it's a biblical metaphor. Oh, it's about Mother Nature. Oh, it's about art and creativity. Um, but the primary, it primarily works as a metaphor. I don't, I don't think that the movie really works on its own as, uh, because it's so clearly a surreal, uh, vision, right? It's Mm -hmm. between the final 30 minutes and like all the crazy occurrences of the film. I, I just don't think it really works as an independent story separate from metaphor, and that's kind of how I feel about this movie too. I, I think that if if it is a depression metaphor or it's a metaphor about any number of um, mental uh, conditions that one may suffer from, I think it works great. I think it's it's like a really insightful and heartbreaking look at those uh, kind of things. But uh, as, you know, similarly, the movie itself didn't really work for me overall. You mm-hmm. know, like I think for me, it works great as a metaphor, and there's some really great sequences. Um, but yeah, as a, as a metaphor, I think is how I'll choose to read it to, to enjoy it the right. most. So I, I really like seeing that everyone's able to like read in the, you know, all, all the metaphors around mental issues too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for me, the one that really got me interested is I, you know, I've always been fascinated with the idea of consciousness and human consciousness. And that's something Alex Garland explored heavily in Ex Machina. And if you look at this movie as a similar exploration, it's about the pure destruction of a consciousness, right? Like we don't we don't know what makes us us. You know, is it is it just the physical stuff in our brains? Is it our memories? Is it like it's a whole bunch of things? So mm-hmm. then, when you have like at the cellular level or at the cellular level, you're being transformed and you can see it happening. Uh, the horror there. Uh, it's like it's like an invasion of the body snatchers movie or something like where you you know you know eventually you will become something different and that in itself is a metaphor for like growing up in different life phases and the movie brings that up too but I found that alone like uh, just kind of fascinating right if you're constantly being changed at what point do you stop becoming you and that mm-hmm. was the whole final scene for me um but there's just like so much more there's so much going on in this movie um over at earther.com maddie stone wrote a great piece about uh how this movie also is sort of like a great example of like what um scientists are worried about like as we're changing the environment as we're changing the ecology and how we're like slowly changing the way organisms live together and the way you know plants work and the way like environment completely changes it's not necessarily going to be a bad thing but it's certainly going to be a significant thing that's going to change the way a lot of living things in the world live um and just as just at that like i think that's a fascinating reading of the film too and i think just on a purely visceral level the heart of darkness yeah. style journey into this horror that is beautiful is so compelling and i was just so taken on the most surface level, as, as even as I was uh, moved by the, the metaphorical level that the sci-fi was working on, just the most pure surface level of these characters that are walking into something they know no one has ever returned from, don't have any memory of, of how they got there, don't know where they are and how to get out necessarily and have to go deeper in order to get out. First of all, that's a metaphor, but also that concept is just so powerful and and the world is so 
beautiful and dense and interesting. I don't know, I was kind of reminded of uh, the video game Last of Us uh, a lot while watching this movie as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just think that the movie works on so many levels. It, it is not the movie that Arrival is for me. I think Arrival is much closer to a masterpiece. Um, and it's hard not to compare them because they're, yeah, they're so yeah. sort of structurally similar. But I do think this movie is, is, will stand the test of time and be one of those cult classics. I, mm. I think it's it's got a lot to say. Arrival has the advantage of just like an emotional gut punch, you yeah. know, that most people didn't see coming. And it kind of sticks with you. And this movie doesn't quite have that. It is more of a lingering uh, disturbance of reality that you kind of just have to sit with for a while. And I think Arrival works on a more rational level as right, well. It, yeah. it it holds together uh, on a on a more analytical level, and and this movie is is kind of playing in that space of metaphor and dream, and and isn't as concerned with mm-hmm. making sense. It, it makes sense on a on a sort of emotional feel level, um, but I think it that's valid. And I I don't know. I was I was along mm-hmm. for that ride. Yeah, we didn't talk about how Alex Garland adapted this book, but uh, you know, he said he read it once, and then it it kind of like you know he had some imagery and, and he just sort of recreated what he could from memory in like a dream state or something. So the movie mm-hmm. itself is just like a really interesting type of adaptation, especially after like he adapted uh, Never Let Me Go uh, into a, that film is amazing too and also heartbreaking. But I think that adaptation is pretty straightforward. You know, most of what's in the book is in the movie. Um, and it's just really fascinating to see him do this. And I really wonder too, like what, uh, what the author thought when like, you know, this guy, he's buying the rights to your thing, but he's not really making your thing. Right. But it's also thematically really actually that makes a lot of sense for what mm-hmm. your story is about. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder how that I the whole saw, thing worked out. I'm trying to remember. I saw online today that, uh, Jeff Vandermeer liked the ending of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he, uh, I don't remember the quote, but I, I feel like it was something along the lines of like the kind of like understanding that it's a very different entity because film behaves differently than novels. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to appreciate uh, this annihilation for what it is rather than being like considering it as a direct adaptation. For sure. It reminds me a lot of Under the Skin, too, and how we mm-hmm. watch that movie and that sense of alienation and inexplicableness of that movie. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, people brought up the Under the Skin uh, comparison a lot. Obviously, the movie owes a lot to Tarkovsky as well. But, like, I, I think the Under the Skin comparison is is where the movie falls apart for me. You know, like, Under the Skin is so out there in terms of its imagery and its plotting and the execution. And even the way they shot the movie was using unconventional cameras. A lot of it happens in these long, continuous takes um, where very little action occurs. Uh, I, I feel like it's really bold filmmaking, and I feel like this movie is too conventional in a lot of ways for me to uh, admire it as much as I think others are admiring it. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. I really don't want to rain on your parade, um, but it just it just didn't do it for me, unfortunately. I mean, it's um, no game night. Yeah, it, I mean, that's that was going yeah, to follow that yeah. up with, yeah, it's no game night. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's our review of Annihilation. A lot to discuss there uh, and a lot of uh, different opinions. But hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, So, yeah, let's wrap things up for today. Uh, Stay tuned to hear a movie we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, 
Find more of our episodes at SliceFromCast.com. Email us at SliceFromCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Jeff Kanata, where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? I do a video game show called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I do a comedy science show, which if you haven't listened to, give it a shot. Only 20-minute episodes. I guarantee you'll learn something and laugh. It is called We Have Concerns, and you can find it at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Christy? Uh, I write all over the web. You can find uh, most of my stuff at decadentcriminals.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Christy Puchko, K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. And there I tweet stuff out all week. So check me out. Devendra Hardwar. Oh, I'm on Twitter at, at Devendra. And I write about tech at Engadget.com. Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky and also DaveChen.net. Next week, we'll be reviewing Red Sparrow, new Jennifer Lawrence movie. Uh, and I, I have a feeling I know where you guys will end up in terms of how much you like it. But uh, I will maybe I'll write that down. We can see if that prediction comes through. I think there will be uh, a lot to discuss. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Slash Filmcast. As we wrap up, I just have one question for all of our listeners out there. Uh, who exactly should listen to the Slash Filmcast? Everyone! Everyone! I told you. Manny? Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! Benny? Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone!